Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's do this. Let's dispense with the formalities right now and get to David Ricks, Eli Lilly, chairman and CEO. And I do this. John and Lisa have a lot of questions about the news yesterday. But, David, I think there's massive confusion over all of these fancy words and particularly around vaccine, around antibody treatment. We conflate bacterial and virus therapies on top of each other. How does a vaccine differ from the antibody treatment you announced yesterday? Well, thanks for having me on, Tom. And exciting news last night with the emergency use authorization in the U.S. for our monoclonal antibody, neutralizing antibody, which is a therapy that you're uh, to be given in this approval if you have new, newer onset disease, so a positive test and symptoms, and in particular if you fall into a high-risk group, you have underlying conditions or you're older, uh, then you can take this therapy. And in our studies, it reduced the probability that you go to the hospital uh, pretty dramatically, by 70%. Um, so that's an important step, another tool now um, to, to help manage this disease just when we need it most. There In terms m- of how it works, you're asking, uh, what we did actually was um, when your body's uh, infected with a virus, it mounts a variety of immune responses. One of them is we create antibodies, which have been much talked about in these antibody testing. Um, these antibodies uh, uh, lock up the virus and dispose of it. What we did was took antibodies from surviving patients early in the pandemic. We isolated the very most potent ones, in one in this case, and now we make it in a factory synthetically and give it as a medicine. This is really important, David Ricks. Can you suggest, just suggest, that this bacterial-like antibody therapy, almost like a bacterial antibiotic, could be a substitute for a true vaccine? Well, we're studying um, what we call passive immunization in a, in a setting where you're trying to prevent spread. In our case, we're looking at spread within nursing home facilities. It, it's similar to vaccination in a way. So when you get a vaccine, we introduce a killed or modified version of a part of a virus, and your body recognizes that as foreign and mounts its own antibody response. Here, what we're doing is we're giving you the antibody response of someone else prior to getting sick. It's in a study. It's not approved. Uh, by the FDA, and we don't have the data yet, but that's a very interesting approach. And if we look at other viruses like Ebola, even uh, this was the setting where these antibodies made the biggest difference. Of course, in the U.S. and I think around the world, nursing home patients, elderly in nursing homes, are at the highest risk. So this would be an important uh, positive event if it occurred, and we should have that data in the coming weeks. Dave, to build on what Tom's discussing, I think we're trying to ask the question as to whether we need a multi-pronged approach here, not just the advancement we heard from Pfizer yesterday, but maybe also complemented by what you're doing as well. One thing that stuck out for us all yesterday is just the storage of the mRNA vaccine that Pfizer are moving forward with and how difficult it is to store at really, really freezing cold temperatures. Dave, can you speak to that, the developments there on that side and how difficult it will be actually to distribute something like that widely and everywhere? Well, for, for the um, messenger RNA vaccines, they are fragile molecules, so they need to be held at a very, very low temperature. That will likely not, I don't think that's going to be a major barrier um, once this is broadly available in developed markets with uh, advanced medical systems. 
Um, where it becomes a problem is where refrigeration and available uh, capacities um, in developing countries, um, you know, is going to be much tougher and will take longer. That's why we have, uh, you know, two of the leading 10 um, vaccines are using this technology. Eight aren't and likely won't have those um, refrigeration uh, restrictions. I suspect some of those will work as well. Uh, I'd bet on that. And uh, we'll likely end up with multiple shots on goal with vaccines. In the meantime, none of them will work 100% of the time. And back to the original question, we'll still need medicines like our antibody therapy to help those that will still get sick, hopefully at a much lower rate as we approach something like um, herd immunity, but you'll still have endemic disease and we'll need um, therapies. We ha there's many examples where this is true, yeah. including common respiratory viruses like RSV, where we have both vaccination and antibodies. They can go together, but together, I mean, this is in the last 48 hours, we have two um, important developments in the fight against COVID-19. I think the future is looking more certain and brighter for sure. To build, though, on what John is talking about, there are some practical concerns as all of the pharmaceutical companies try to ramp up production. And I'm wondering, supply chain issues, especially as the pandemic worsens, the idea that all of these different pharmaceutical companies are trying to go for the same thing and probably sourcing some of the same, uh, some of the same substances as well as using some of the same staffers. How well can you ramp up production of the antibody therapies to meet demand in the next couple of months? Well, I wouldn't worry so much about that um, competition phase where we're competing our ideas. I think once it's clear there are winners, you'll see the industry come together to make product at scale. That's already occurred in the antibody space where Roche and Regeneron, who have a different approach from Lilly's, have teamed up. We've teamed up with Amgen and then also the largest uh, contract manufacturing organizations in the world like Samsung and Fuji uh, to build out that supply base. So I don't think you're, uh, we're wasting material uh, by, by competing in that way. Of course, antibodies are complicated to make. One of the most complicated medicines we make, and we usually reserve them for severe disease like cancer and autoimmunity. Here we're talking about treating thousands, millions of people potentially with these antibodies. It will strain that system and we will have scarcity, that's for sure. That's why the FDA last night when they approved this really asked doctors to use it in the highest risk <clears throat> patients. That's appropriate, so we use it where it matters most. Dave, these are serious issues. We have about 30 seconds left, and I'd, I'd love for you to do me a favor on just a lighter note. Can you explain the offside rule to Tom Keane in about 20 seconds? Can you do that for us? Please. You're talking about in football. Uh, yes, of course. of course. So offsides is when, when the offensive player is in front of the defensive player prior to the ball being struck. Uh, of course, once the ball's struck, he can run in front. It doesn't matter. Uh, that's different from hockey, where the blue line is what matters. Oh, thank you. That's very Textbook. good. David Ricks there. And of course, this Today, is with the support you. of Eli Lilly to our Olympic committee, which they've been committed to. That's true. Uh, John, for, for, yeah. for, for many years. Last <laughs> week, it was Guernsey and the U.S. election. Latvia. And this week, it's the Great Rotation, East Anglia and Latvia. Sabatra Japa <laughs> is joining us now. She's sitting there wondering what is about to happen on is this show. Still there? She joins us from SOCGEN. She's the head of US rate strategy and I'm pleased to say she's still here. Sabatra, <laughs> let's just start with the bond market move of yesterday. Your first take, please. Uh, a spectacular move higher in, in yields and, uh, you know, basically the bond market's been all over the place. First, we unwound the reflation trade after the election, and then we had to reflate in a rush yesterday. Um, so we've, we've broken through some key 
you know, technical levels yesterday. And I think that the sell-off, like you said, with, with equities, the sell-off in the bond market could have legs as well. There's just a lot of cash in the sidelines uh, that needs to be put to work. And if there's an opportunity, mm. I think you're going to see a departure away from bonds into, into risky assets. Sabat, a really important question. I did the math yesterday. I used J.P. Morgan just as a giant financial success. And yes, it's come off the bottom, but it's nowhere back to the pre-Valentine's Day trend. It needs to go up another 14% sort of to get back to trend. Don't quote me on that, folks. Those are rough numbers. Did you see a catharsis yesterday going up, Rajap uh, Subhadra, that Did you see a catharsis that speaks to a new bull market? Market or a new leg of a bull market? Well, I'm not an equity strategist, so I can't really comment on the on the on the uh, on the equity market. But on, from the bond side of the equation, I think one of the things that happened after the election was positioning was a lot cleaner. There were a lot of shorts going into the into the elections that got cleaned out. And when we got this sort of surprise news from Pfizer, you saw this this sort of uh, you know massive sell off in in bonds. And I think that that going forward, what the market's going to be focused on is 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 like you mentioned earlier about what happens on the vaccine side of the equation. Um, you know, there's lots of logistical issues that that need to be dealt with. It's a, it's a, it's a very large deployment from perhaps several different vaccine makers, and and how that gets rolled out is going to be very key on how the bond market reacts and how equities react as well. And I think for for a change, you're going to see more correlation. Uh, or sort of more uh, you know, negative correlation between equities and bonds, where you see you know, risk on days in equities and a sell-off in bonds. Subhadra, I'm losing the neat narrative here. I got to be honest. Yesterday, I was really confused because we've got 10-year yields shooting higher, seismic move. You have break-even rates, the expectation for longer-term inflation not doing that much. So this isn't necessarily a surge in long-term growth prospects. And all of a sudden, you've got junk bond yields at record lows, even though we've got an unemployment rate that still is near historic highs in the recent era. What's the narrative? So, you know, I, I would say, broadly speaking, real yields as well as break-evens are heading in the right direction. We hit a low of negative 1% in 10-year real yields. That's gone up to close to negative 80 basis points. And then in, in break-evens as well, you saw about a, a 6 or 7 basis point rise in break-evens. Uh, so it's, it's heading in the right direction. That's what you want to see in a reflation trade, higher real yields and wider break-evens. The question is one of caution. It's really hard for the bond market to price in a lot of exuberance in a very short period of time, given the fact that the Fed is very much at play. And there's really no certainty on a lot of, of fronts. I mean, there's not, there's not good, it's not clear that we're going to get any sort of a fiscal stimulus by the end of the year. Even if we do, it's not going to be of the magnitude that's required by the, by the economy uh, to prevent near-term damage in the jobs market. Sebastian, you mentioned the Federal Reserve, and for me, it's the recovery through 21 that we all hope for, where the Fed's new reaction function will start to come into its own, where good news will just be good news because the Fed has said we will not step in. How are you thinking about that after the news of the 24 hours? Well, I think that the Fed is doing exactly what they should be doing, which is they're staying pat, right? There's not much they can do on the monetary policy side to stimulate the economy. What, really need, what the economy really needs now is on the fiscal side. 
if there is sort of an unruly sell-off in bonds, and I can see the, the the Fed step in, but there's really no need for for any sort of monetary stimulus at the current time. Financial conditions, broadly speaking, are extraordinarily easy. You're looking at interest rates at historic lows, you know, equity markets at historic highs. The dollar is weak, so there's really not much the Fed can do to move the needle. Really, the the, the stimulus has to come on the fiscal side side to stop uh, job losses. Sebastian, great to catch up as always. Sabaj Rajapa there of SockGen. What we're trying to do, John Furrow and Lisa Bramowitz, and to all of you on radio and TV, is bring you more than the markets. We're looking at economics, finance, investment, this horrific virus as we speak to scientists. Sometimes we speak to politicians. Kathy Hochul is the lieutenant governor of the Empire State. She knows the trajectory of the Erie Canal as it opened up western New York. And from Onondaga to Monroe to Erie County, it is a yellow zone. The lieutenant governor joins us this morning. Kathy, what is a yellow zone and what does it mean as you confront a new virus? Well, thank you for having me back on the show. And yes, I'm embedded in that yellow zone right now. Yellow means caution. And it says that if our numbers don't start trending downward, reversing where we've been for the last two weeks, we'll be in a situation where we head into orange and red. And those mean we'll have shutdowns. And we'll be trying very hard not to get to a situation where we have to reverse the progress Mm -hmm. we've made on reopening. But our schools also have to do more testing. We've limited the number of people at gatherings. So it's not the worst-case scenario, but it's a warning to our residents here, as I've been saying for days now, change your behavior or you'll be locked out of your favorite restaurant and you have no chance of going to a football game in person this year and a lot of other consequences. So it's basically trying to say uh, beware and change your behavior starting today. Lieutenant Governor, the conceit is the big cities have ample medicine, ample hospitalization. I think of Strong and that complex in Rochester. Over in Buffalo, you've seen a positivity rate that has just exploded. Are you concerned with Governor Cuomo about the hospitalization facilities available? The good news is, is that we are prepared for even more capacity, far more capacity in the early months of this pandemic. And the governor made sure that we had ample supplies of PPE in all the hospitals. Each one was required to have at least a three-month additional supply. I've been in regular touch with their leadership of the hospitals. Yes, our numbers have gone up, but it's about uh, maybe 90, 100 people in hospitals in Western New York. We can handle that now, but you're absolutely right. It's something that if the numbers, you know, the number of people testing positive, if they turn into serious cases and hospitalizations required, you know, we're going to have to get back to the eliminating the elective surgeries and a lot of the uh, unessential procedures that are are now going on. So we can create the capacity very quickly, though. We actually have, uh, unfortunately, a lot of experience dealing with this and we'll be able to handle it. In the meantime, Kathy, yesterday we got incredible news on the vaccine front from Pfizer. A lot of people expecting a turn, perhaps an end to the pandemic next year. But there's a lot of daylight between now and then. And some people saying that will reduce the emphasis on a fiscal support plan from Washington, D.C., from your vantage point, how much does this take pressure off of Washington to help with the $12 billion bailout for the MTA, to help with the unemployment as more people get laid off as the virus counts go up, and just help financially going forward? I don't think they're related. I, I don't think that having a vaccine 
takes the pressure off at all because we've already lost that money. We've already lost the revenues and the fees generated from people using our transportation systems or from the sales tax revenues that were not collected. And the extraordinary cost that we had to incur just fighting this pandemic and are still paying for now, that's not gone away with the vaccine. And the truth is this vaccine is going to take a while to be widely disseminated and have a real impact. Now, Governor Cuomo this summer started working on this, you know, very early on to have a widespread distribution plan in the state of New York, one that's quite different from what the White House is proposing, where they're saying they're going to get into the hands of doctors and to the pharmacies, which is great if you live in an area that has a lot of doctors and pharmacies. But large parts of New York City are what we call healthcare deserts. They don't have a Rite Aid or a CVS or Walgreens. I mean, where, where are they supposed to get it? So we're focused in New York on making sure that communities that have been hardest hit that make sure that they're not left out of uh, the distribution of the vaccine early on as well, because many of those individuals in the black and brown communities, they're the frontline workers, they're the healthcare workers, they're the MTA workers. So we want to make sure that there's, the plan includes everyone and is fairly distributed as quickly as possible. Lieutenant Governor, just to finish on a final question about restrictions. We've seen restrictions from Massachusetts. We've seen it from Utah. And yesterday evening, we saw it from the governor of New Jersey, Mr. Murphy. Now, Phil Murphy outlined a plan that we're all familiar with here in the UK, which is to close down indoor dining from 10 p.m. We're familiar with that because it didn't end there. Something else came next. Kathy, do you see merit in that approach? Lieutenant Governor, do you think that is a good approach to allow indoor dining to shut at 10 p.m.? Does that make sense to you? To stop at 10 p.m., we actually have a, a restaurants have to shut down at midnight in New York City, and that is part of our yellow zone. In fact, in you know, upstate New York, those counties that you referenced earlier will now be having restaurants uh, shut down at midnight because people tend to, the more you drink, the more you're out, you know, more likely to gather at parties afterwards. You know, just analyze human behavior. Your defenses go down the more alcohol you've consumed, the less yeah. likely you are to be compliant about wearing the mask. So we think it makes sense. The issue that we have here, though, Lieutenant Governor, is it didn't stop there and it clearly wasn't sufficient. You're not at all concerned that 12 doesn't make sense, 10 doesn't make sense, that actually you need to get ahead of what's about to happen through winter. Well, oh, you're, you're asking if it's going to be more restrictive. Well, the numbers will dictate that in the state of New York and New York City's infection rate was 1.8% on Friday. It has creeped up to about 2.5%. So clearly, yes, we are watching those numbers. And as we head into various zones, the one zone that does require a, a shutdown of restaurants is the, is the red zone. What we're now doing is limiting the yeah. number of people at tables. You can't have 10 people at a table. You can only have four. So everything you're talking about, we are watching what's going on in other states. But New York still maintains that we are the lowest large state infection rate. I think a couple of rural states are maybe a little bit lower than us. But we want to maintain that. And you're absolutely right that everything has to be on the table to consider if we get to that situation. Lieutenant Governor, we appreciate your time and hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Kathy Hochul there. Mr. Farrow identifies that spread uh, between Russell 2000, the small cap, is indicated by the big tech is negative, big tech negative, Russell 2000 is positive. Stam Soval has seen this before. He's with CFRA. Well, actually, none of us have seen what we saw yesterday, and it will go in the acclaimed stock almanac. Sam Stovall, just your single summary of how unusual was yesterday. 
Well, Tom, very unusual. I mean, we were up uh, more than 5% at one point on the day, and then we closed up 1.2% on the S&P 500. So when you look to, you know, closing percent changes, um, it's just simply a blip. Uh, we had five times this year that were even substantially stronger. On March 24th, we were up 9.4% in a single day. Um, and so I, I would say it would certainly add excitement to one's portfolio, but certainly not adding a lot in terms of asset value right now. Sam, yesterday was a catch-up trade. We can all agree on that. The names, the parts of the market that were left behind, all caught up. Where people thought was safe suddenly became a massive risk. You reprice, boom, 24 hours, done. Or is it? And Sam, that's the question right now. Was yesterday the catch-up trade or the beginning of a durable trend? Now, that's really difficult to identify with one day's price action. But Sam, do you have a call on that? Well, I, I think that, you know, when you look to the individual day, then, you know, you're absolutely correct. Um, you had basically 75% of the near 150 sub-industries in the S&P 1500 in positive territory. So it was pretty broadly diversified. The S&P 600 was up close to 5% in the single day. Mid-caps were up 3% versus the large caps a little more than 1% gain. I think that because investors are saying we've got 10 companies around the world that are in phase three trials of a COVID-19 virus vaccine, that even if Pfizer's uh, stumbles a little bit, we still have nine more that we can work with. And so Wall Street is looking beyond the valley. It's looking beyond the spike right now and saying six to 12 months from now, uh, things will be growing. And the real question is, by how much will analysts be elevating their 2021 estimates? And we all have to look beyond this valley just to stay upright, frankly, because the pandemic hasn't been that fun. That said, you still have to start wondering about valuations. Yes, we are going to reach some sort of new normal, but we're at record highs, basically, in a lot of the equity indices. And this is predicated on the idea that interest rates will stay low. At what point will Treasury yields rise high enough to offset that narrative, to basically say we have to reset valuations? Yes, it's a better world, but valuations got too high for where rates may be. Well, good point. If you look at it on an absolute basis, basically everything looks expensive. S&P 500 is trading at 22.4 times next 12-month NTM earnings, which is a 35% premium to its average over the last 20 years. Every sector except financials and healthcare are trading at double-digit premiums. On a relative basis, however, only consumer discretionary and energy are trading at double-digit premiums to the market. So I guess it really depends on whether we're going to be seeing rotation or an actual retreat. Right now, from a technical perspective, I think we have to see interest rates go above 1% in order for us to see a technical rotation from a bearish trend to a neutral trend. And then I think we need to see interest rates rise more dramatically for investors to really get scared and think that inflation is right around the corner. And just to give some perspective, we now have a 10-year yield near session highs at 95 basis points, so about five basis points away from that 1% mark. There is also a question of whether this rotation means losses for big tech or just underperformance. What's your take on that, Sam? Well, right now we're, we're going for um, losses um, or underperformance, actually. Near-term losses 
but more longer-term underperformance. When you look at the S&P 500 growth minus value on a rolling 12-month basis, we hit an all-time high in August and then again in September, uh, meaning that going back to 1975, the 12-month percent change for growth stocks minus uh, that, that for value uh, was at about 35 percentage points, higher than where we were during the tech bubble of the late 1990s. So uh, it just seemed that it was a matter of time before we saw some sort of rotation away from growth and toward value, which we're in the very early phases of right now. So, Sam, this raises a really important question. Let me build on what Lisa just asked. How much risk is there at the index level for passive investors just sitting and holding the S&P 500? Given the weightings of these huge tech names, Apple, 6% of the S&P, Microsoft, 5.5%, Amazon, about 4.5%. Is there a lot of risk at the index level because of the weightings? Um, I guess so. I mean, when you think about it, um, you mentioned uh, technology with Microsoft and Apple, but then you've got Facebook and the two uh, share classes uh, of Google in the communication services. You have Amazon and Visa in the uh, consumer discretionary. So it's not just one sector. It is spread around. Uh, And so it is a large cap index, and therefore the behemoths do tend to drive the action. But interesting, back in 2008, you would have said pretty much the same thing. Um, Ditto back in 2000. Yet the equal weight 500 tends to fall more precipitously in the early phases of bear markets or or, um, corrections. So it is interesting, but the, uh, they do offer ballast because of their size, because of their market share, et cetera. Well, the equal way had a massive day yesterday. Sam, it's great to catch up to get your thoughts on this market. What a move we've had. What a week already. Sam Stovall there, CFRA, Chief Investment Strategist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.